Tonight we begin at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, but I have to go back and read 19. They're obviously kind of continuous thoughts from 19 to 20. But we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, that is confidence, to enter into the holiest, that is heaven. And Christians today, you and I, we ought to have that confidence to enter into heaven. Not because of our own righteousness. I'm not reading here. I'm, this is my comments with that. We have this confidence to enter to heaven, not because of our own righteousness, not because of the good things that we have done, but notice he tells us in verse 19, we are able to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ. Think how many songs we sing that deal with the blood of Christ. There is power in the blood, and certainly it is powerful, but we're able to enter into heaven now because of the blood of Christ. And he says in verse 20, by a new and a living way which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now when you read this, it might sound like his flesh. And when it says that is to say his flesh, it may sound like his flesh, there's a reference to the veil. I don't think it is. I think when he's, what he's saying in verse 20, we have confidence to enter into heaven by a new and living way which, has, which he has consecrated for us, that is to say his flesh. I think the flesh here is a reference to the new and living way. Remember, it was Christ's death on the cross, that sacrifice that makes this way into heaven possible. Remember, he says in John 14, I am the way, the life, the truth, very singular. He doesn't say I'm one of the ways, you know, I'm one of a few ways or one of several. I am the, and so there's only one, but he says I am the way. Here it's described in verse 20 as a living way because certainly God is a living God. Uh, Christ has died on the cross, but yet he lives again, he's still living. It's a new and living way because it's the way that gives us life. It's the only way we have to eternal life. And so he's just reminding them to stay faithful to God, stay faithful to Christ. Don't go back into this old system, the inferior system of Judaism, but stay faithful. And, and Christ has made that way through the veil, he says. Remember, through the veil. People want to look at the veil of the tabernacle and discuss its meaning. And I know people have put forth different meanings and I think the simplest way to look at it is just read it for what it is. It's a it's a a barrier, if you want to call it that, or it's a dividing line. It's something that separates the holy place from the most holy. And I think looking at the tabernacle, that's the separation between the church and heaven itself. And he's telling us in verse 19 and 20, through Christ's flesh, through his blood that was shed on the cross, he has made that way possible for us through the veil now, entering into heaven, and that's made possible by the blood of Christ, verse 19. And having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, now let us draw near. Well, near to what? I think he's saying let us draw near to God with a true heart. Some translations may say with a sincere heart and full of assurance of faith. See, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So we're able to draw near to God with assurance. See? Not with doubt. Heaven shouldn't be something that we look at with an attitude of maybe so. You know, oh, I hope so. I hope I get there when I die. Something like that. But we ought to have assurance that we will be there. Has God promised us heaven? Well, He's promised us, hasn't He? The Bible says in 1 John, we have eternal life in promise. Now, now I understand it's, it's a promise that's based on contingencies. 
That's why, in a way, I don't really have eternal life now. I mean, I've, I've been saved now. I understand that. But I can be lost if I turn back. You can forfeit your salvation. So we have this eternal life in promise, though. He has promised us. If we stay faithful, we'll have it. Uh, go back to John 14. Did he, didn't he say, if it were not so, I would have told you. I would have told you. Uh, so heaven's not like a carrot on a stick, you know, something he's teasing us with. But certainly it's something he's promised us. And so the next question would be, remember what Peter writes, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Does God keep his promise? He's, he's promised us heaven. He's promised us heaven. Uh, does he keep his promises? Yes. So can you have this full assurance of heaven? Verse 22. Yes. Blessed assurance. Uh, but we do understand, I hope we all understand, that this promise is contingencies. That is, he's going to keep his promises, but I also have to be faithful myself until the very end. Uh, I can give salvation up. I can forfeit it. You know, it, you know, it's kind of an interesting point to me, and I'm not sure how much I would make of it. But nonetheless, some people that believe that man has free will... That is, he has the ability to choose, really, whether he's going to be saved or not. Uh, it's not something that's determined before birth, but man has free will and he can choose that. Well, man does have free will. But some people that teach man has free will always also teach once saved, always saved. That is, uh, that, you know, once I've been saved from my sins, it's literally, truly impossible for me to ever sin in such a way again that I'll ever be lost. Well, think about that. Doesn't the doctrine of eternal security take away man's free will? I mean, I, I don't know why anybody would choose to be lost after they've been saved. But eternal security is saying you don't have that choice anymore. In essence, it's taking away man's free will, is it not? So in verse 22, he says, Let, let us draw near. Now let us draw near to God with a true or sincere heart and full of assurance of faith, having our own uh, hearts now sprinkled from an evil conscience, Remember how does that happen? Look at 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now. In, in baptism, we're basically appealing to God for a clear conscience or a clean conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. I think he's just carrying over some, some symbolism from the old law here into this ideal. You, I don't want to go to verse 22 here and try to justify sprinkling in, in, in lieu of immersion or anything like that. He's just carrying over that figurism from the old law. Let us hold fast, verse 23. He's just saying, hold fast. Kind of like what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. He's saying, don't give up, don't give up. In due season we shall reap if we faint not, Galatians 6. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful. Notice he says now, for he is faithful that promised. And he's just reminding them, listen, God keeps his promises. Uh, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and the good works, verse 24. Well, I often think when I read this, sometimes we're pretty good at provoking one another. But not necessarily in the right way. But of course, he's telling us here, provoke unto love and to good works. And it has the idea of helping to, uh, to encourage and motivate. You know, stir one another up then. To love and to good works. And I've got, if you're making notes or anything like that, you might want to write down 1 Corinthians 12, 26 along with it. 
Now Hebrews 10.25, maybe one of the most quoted, it may very well be the most quoted verse out of the whole book of Hebrews. I don't know that, but it's definitely one of the most quoted. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sin. I'm reading that from the King James. The New American Standard for verse 26 will say, for if we go on sinning willfully. And that's the idea. It's like a, I've gone into that now. It's a continuing, continuing thing. In verse 25, some people, and myself included, <laughs> have often used this verse to point out the importance of assembling together and coming together. And there's nothing wrong with that. That verse obviously supports that idea. That being said, if we and, and it supports that idea, I'm not denying that at all. It's a good verse to use to, to teach that. Keeping the whole book of Hebrews in its context, though, I think this verse has even a stronger meaning. In other words, he's not trying to tell them, you're commanded to assemble, so you must do that for the sake of assembling. I think he's trying to bring out the benefits of assembling. Here you have a group of people who has their faith tested and they're being tempted to go back into Judaism. And I think what he's bringing out in verse 25 is one way to help, keep, to help each other keep from going back into Judaism. Notice what he's saying. Not forsaking, and the word has the abandoning, abandon. The full word forsake has uh, like Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you and leave you to your own. You know, leave you to yourself. I'm not going to do that. When he says not forsaking, it has the idea of abandoning. And, and notice it says, as the manner of some is. In other words, some then took on this, uh, well, took on this manner. <laughs> took on the idea, well, they've just abandoned meeting together. Okay, they quit. He said, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Some have just quit. Notice he says, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, I know you've heard me say in the past, this little word, B-U-T, look at it. And I don't know how many times I have to remind myself, pay attention to the words when you're reading the Bible. Pay attention to the words. And oftentimes, probably most of the time, I believe, when you see the word but, B-U-T, whatever came before it is the opposite of what comes after it. Not this, but this. And so I think he's kind of using these terms parallel where he says, don't forsake the assembly, but instead encourage one another. Now, I don't think, I, I think when you look at what the day is, I don't think... He's saying encourage one another to assemble as much as that is important and good. See, I don't deny that. Who would deny that? Who would say it's a bad idea to encourage one another to assemble? Who would be so foolish to say that's a bad idea? We shouldn't do that. Of course we should do that. But again, in his context, I think his point of verse 25, he's saying don't forsake the assembling of together, but you need to make sure and assemble together. Come together as Christians the first day of every week. Why? Because, he says, in coming together, you will exhort one another or encourage one another to stay faithful. 
So I don't think he's really referring to encouraging one another to assemble. Although, again, that's important, obviously. I think his point is the encouragement here is that which should take place at the assembly. See, why does, one, why does God want us to come together and worship? That, that really is a simple question. But on the other hand, I think when you think about it, there might be more answers to that than we realize. More good, right, than good and right answers. In other words, why do we come together? Well, obviously we come together to worship. And if God doesn't accept our worship, then I would agree that really nothing else is relevant. But if you think about it, uh, could you sing songs to God and worship Him at home? Now, I'm not saying does God accept that. Don't get me wrong. You could sing a song at home, couldn't you? You, could, you can pray at home, can't you? I'm not saying in lieu of gathering to worship. That's not my point. You could do that at home. But God doesn't accept that. God wants us to come together and worship because He knows coming together is one way we will be continually encouraged to be Christians, to stay faithful. The context starts in 19 and goes through 25. 19 through 25, together is an encouragement to come together and to draw close to one another. It's an encouragement to come together. But again, I, I, think, I really think it's, it's also more than just an encouragement to assemble. I think it's also including the encouragement that ought to be part of our assembly. All right? Don't go back into Judaism. Stay faithful. And he tells us in verse 25, And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So now that gets into what is this day approaching? Some say, well, that's a reference to Sunday. Encourage one another to come together and so much more as you see the day approaching. I'm not trying to be funny. But if this day is Sunday, then it seems to me you should encourage me more on Thursday than you did on Tuesday. And we don't do that, do we? But as you, if you're going to encourage one another more and more as you see the day approaching, it seems like that would make sense. It's not, it's not a reference to Sunday. Some people say, well, it's a reference to the day of your death. Well, I'll admit we should encourage each other to stay faithful until the end, but... I, I can't see that day approaching, can you? I mean, do you know when you're going to die? Is it on a calendar and you can see it? Some say, well, it's probably a reference to the judgment day. Well, we can't see that either. Now, I know there's some times where Paul discusses the idea of looking for that day, looking, looking for the judgment day and looking for that day. I, I understand that. But when he talks about looking for that day, it still has the idea of living with an anticipation for it, not the idea that we're going to look for it and actually see it on a calendar. When he's talking in verse 25 about as you see the day approaching, he's talking about a day that they could see. They could see it coming. And so what's he talking about here? And, you know, their ideals and thoughts one way or another, I understand that, so... Again, as I've said before, you need to believe whatever you believe. You need to believe it because it's a result of your study. Right? Not because somebody else said it, you know, and you heard it. I don't care how many times you've heard it or how long you've heard it. I think the day approaching here is a reference to the, day that, uh, to a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. To me, that best fits the context of the book. He's telling them, stay faithful. 
Stay faithful. You're tempted to go back into Judaism. Don't do it. Stay faithful until the end and don't give up. And you're going to see that day approaching. Now, could they see the day of destruction coming? That is the destruction of Jerusalem? They sure could. Look at Matthew 24. A lot of people teach a lot of things in Matthew 24 that just aren't there. If you're looking for a uh, uh, if you're looking for a rapture, it's not in Matthew 24 nor anywhere else in the Bible for that matter. If you're looking for a thousand year reign, it's not in Matthew 24. If you're looking for Christ to come back and set a kingdom on earth, it's not in Matthew 24 or anywhere else in the Bible. But look at what he's saying in Matthew 24. And you really have to divide it into sections. At one point later on in the latter part of the chapter, it seems that he is talking about judgment and the end of the world. But I think particularly in the first part of the chapter, He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And read what you read so much in Matthew 24. It's like, pray that it not happen in the winter. Listen, when Christ, that's why I listen to some of the things people teach from Matthew 24, that really, you don't have to have a whole lot of intelligence, but common sense helps. Just plain old common sense. Common sense. When Christ comes again, and the world comes to an end, and now we face Judgment Day, are you going to care if that happens in the winter or not? Boy, I wish this would have been in the spring. It's so nice in the spring. See? But that's what he's telling them in Matthew 24. Pray not that it come in the winter. And, and you know, and, and that's why if you study what's happening prior to AD 70, they could see this day coming because they, they saw the, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem and they knew the time was very near. And that's why he's telling them, see, some were, they were told basically to flee the city. Historians say no Christians died in the destruction of Jerusalem. I, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not positive how accurate that can be, but it certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Because they were warned to flee. And they could see this when they saw the Roman armies starting to surround Jerusalem. They knew the day was near. And then, of course, that takes place under uh, the Roman commander, I think Titus, in AD 70. And it's interesting, if you read some of the things by Josephus and things, what all took place during uh, that time. But again, I think even more, he's telling him, listen, they're coming. And this is going to happen. And you stay faithful until the end. And one way you're going to do that is by assembling together and encouraging one another. Don't give up. Notice he says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully, and again, you might read that idea, if we go on sinning willfully, if we continue to sin willfully, if I've, if I've rejected Christ, and I've turned my back on God, and really, I don't care what some people may say about worshiping on the lake and, and all this kind of stuff. If you want to turn your back on God and leave the faith, one surefire way to do it is for forsake the assembly. That is, you're going to abandon it. You're going to quit going. Right? You've just abandoned the assembly and you've quit meeting with other Christians. Ultimately, you're going to leave for the faith. See? And you're going to go back into that. And that's why he tells us in verse 26, if you chose to forsake the assembly, if you're going to go back and leave all that, and if you're going to reject Christ, and if you're going to go back into Judaism, verse 26, you're, sin, you're sinning willfully now. And if you sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more 
sacrifice for sins. There's no way to save man except the blood of Christ. And as long as you go on continually reject Christ, there's no hope for you. Again, how in the world does the book of Hebrews help support the idea of once saved, always saved? Every chapter in the book destroys the doctrine of eternal security. Um, notice it said, they received the knowledge of the truth. Well, they weren't really saved. They just seemed like it. I mean, that's a common argument. They weren't really saved. They just seemed like they were, you know. They weren't genuine. That's not what the Bible says. Look at verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have appeared to receive the knowledge of the truth. That's not what it says. We received it. Look at 2 Peter. For, um, you're just going to have to look at 2 Peter. I was going to quote it right now and I can't quote it. Uh, for, if, for if after they've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he said, they are again entangled in and overcome. He says, what? The latter end is worse than the beginning. For they're like this dog that's going back to his vomit or this filthy pig that's going back to the mud. The latter end is worse than the beginning. Now how can the latter end possibly be worse than the beginning if in the beginning they were lost and now they're saved. And now they go back and are entangled in the world and they're worse off now than they were before. If they're still saved. I mean, how could they possibly be worse off? So he's saying, listen, you can forfeit your salvation. Remember, man always has free will. Even after you're saved, you can still decide whether you want to forfeit your salvation or not. God doesn't take that away. Now look at verse 27, but a, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Look at the words there, fearful. Well, looking for of judgment, we're not going to see it on the calendar, but we're going to, hopefully we're living in anticipation of judgment. Fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now notice verse 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment King James I think some translations will say greater punishment worse punishment um, one translation may say uh, the more severe punishment uh, again New American Standard verse 29 will say how much severer punishment how, how do you want to say it it's sorer it's worse it's more severe it's the worst punishment his point is look at verse 28 those that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And look at, the, look at the times under the law of Moses where people died and they were punished because of their sin, which looking back, as we look back, it might seem trivial to us. But look at the times people could be punished under the old law. Look at Numbers 15, 36. You read about what would happen to a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath. You know, people want to get into some of the issues today. They, some of them are really unsure what sex they are and they're trying to decide what gender they are. And, and look what the Bible says in the Old Testament about men wearing women's clothing. They were put to death. Don't, don't anybody leave here and misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should put those people to death today. I'm not saying that. But when did this sin become any less displeasing to God? That's what I would like for somebody to tell me. There's still, there's still 
spiritually they're spiritually dead. And they're spiritually dead as long as they remain in that situation. And they can repent. And they can be saved. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. You see this, this horrible list of sinners, you might say, in 1 Corinthians 6. And some of those people in 1 Corinthians 6 who were previously homosexuals, thieves, drunkards in the past, now they're sitting in the pews. Because he says... Know you not, in 1 Corinthians 6, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither the drunkards, the rivers, homosexuals, murderers, thieves, all of it. And then he goes on to say, but such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Don't ever let anybody tell you people cannot change. The gospel has the power to change people, does it not? But my point back, and let's get back to verse 29 now. All right. How much worse punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy of? Worthy of what? Worthy of this worst punishment, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing. That is, an, a common thing, and is done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Some may say, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. You remember the Passover? Where did they put the blood on the door? Remember that? Did they not put the blood on the lintel, the horizontal piece over the door? Did they not put the blood on the side post of the door? Uh, what's the door? What's the bottom part of the door that you walk across the threshold? How much blood was on the threshold? You don't walk on the blood of Christ. Don't do that. And that's what he's telling them here. If When they go back into the world, they've been sanctified by the blood. When they go back into the world, they are in essence making the blood of Christ a common unholy thing. And they've insulted the Spirit of grace in doing so. For in verse 30, for we know him that said, Vengeance... Now, vengeance is not revenge. Don't, don't get mixed up. Don't, let, don't look at it as God is seeking revenge. The word is vengeance, and it has the idea of justice. God is going to carry out justice. He's vengeance belonging to me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. I wish more time, I wish people would spend more time, probably myself included, honestly, I wish people would spend more time reading and contemplating verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And who is he writing to? Again, he's writing to these Christians and trying to get them. Man, hang in there. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But don't give up. Don't go back. And he's telling them, listen, if you go back, you're going to be worthy of a worse punishment, a more severe punishment, and you're going to fall into the hands of the living God. I would like to fall in the hands of living God for correction. We're going to look at it in a few minutes, where the, well, later on anyway, uh, where the Bible talks about God chastening people. It's one thing to be chastened and corrected. But the idea of falling into the hands of the living God for punishment 
that's something else entirely different, is it not? Uh, also, I might mention this. Uh, God's going to carry out justice in verse 30, but I might mention this in verse 29. Are there degrees of punishment? People getting one into this discussion. Are there degrees of punishment? Are there degrees of reward? I know this. The Bible talks about the man who's worthy, deserving of more stripes. If there are no degrees of punishment, I really don't know what verse 29 means, honestly. Uh, and look at the verses in the Bible. It would be more tolerable for them now than it is for you if you fall in, fall in, fall away. And again, you need to study for this for yourself and come to your own conclusions. But I believe the Bible clearly teaches there are degrees of punishment. But you know what ought to scare us about that? Maybe, maybe scare is not the best word. But you know at least what ought to get our attention? Maybe scare us even. Anytime you're reading in the Bible about somebody receiving a more severe punishment, who is he talking about? He's talking about Christians who have gone back in the world. I think, I'm, I'm going to say this because I believe it, but again, I encourage you to read it and study it for yourself. Don't go away thinking it because I said it. But I believe some people are going to get a worse, more severe punishment than others. I think it's going to be Christians who've gone back in the world because you knew it. You knew the truth. You had it. You were saved. I shed my blood for you and you had all the benefits and then you turned your back on it and counted the blood of Christ an unholy common thing. Again, look at 2 Peter. It had been better for them, he says, it had been better for them that they had never known the truth than after they had known it to go back in the world. How, is it, how would it be better for them to have never known the truth than to know the truth and go back in the world? Because I think now that they've known the truth and go back in the world, they're going to have a more severe punishment than if they had not. You know, how, when you look at the story of the young rich ruler, not the young rich ruler, but the Lazarus and the rich man, he knew, uh, how do I want to put this? Is that why this makes sense? Uh, I don't know, but please do. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Think about people who have left the faith, they've fallen away, they have abandoned the faith, they're back in the world now, and they are going to be lost. The Bible teaches that. Um, I do not believe, I'm getting into chapter 12 now, I do not believe people living on, the, I do not believe the dead who are in paradise today have a knowledge of what's going on in this world. Ecclesiastes said, the dead know nothing under the sun. Now, under the sun is important. He doesn't say, he doesn't say the dead know nothing. The dead know nothing under the sun. I believe people who have died have no knowledge of this world's activities. That's not to say they have no knowledge. That's not to say they have no remembrance. And think about people who have been saved and they've enjoyed the blessings of being a child of God they go back into the world. Later on, they're in hell, and they know there is no getting out. 
That's something else that ought to scare us, honestly. Just think about eternity. Eternity. Imagine this. There's nothing you can put on the calendar that says, this is my release date. You're just there for eternity. But not only that, but you think about, you know, I could have had it. And I blew it. In fact, I did have it at one time. I could have been there with God and all of His people. And I'll never be able to see them. I'll never be able to talk to God again. Not only that, I'll never experience the beauty of heaven. But I will always experience the torment of hell. I had it. I gave it up. I blew it. I don't know how literal you want to take that, so I'm not really arguing the point one way or another. Again, I've got thoughts on it back and forth. But truly, when we're reading that in Luke 16, he could see. Yeah, he talked to Abraham. He had to be able to see. And not only could he see, but you know, what did he, what did he also want his brothers to do? He wanted, his, he wanted his brothers to be saved, didn't he? You know, sometimes we say, misery loves company. Come on, listen, that is totally false in hell. The more company you have there, you're still going to be miserable, and miserable is an understatement. I've actually heard a lady one time say her mother was such a wonderful person. My mother was the best person you'll ever find. She was the most faithful person you'll ever find. I can't imagine her being lost, even though she was in her denomination, but I tell you what, if she's lost, I want to be in hell there with her because she was such a wonderful person. And we'll both tell you, we just nearly fell out of the pews when I heard that because I thought, do you understand what you're saying? See, in hell, misery does not love company. I hope that I will stay faithful to the end. But you know what? I've told my kids this. No matter what your daddy does, you stay faithful. If we're separated, it's not going to make anybody in hell less miserable. But also, it's not going to make anyone in heaven less happy either. It's like, whatever I do, kids, <laughs> you stay faithful. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to read that, it would seem that um, uh, the rich man could see him, could he not? But is there any is there any indication Lazarus could see the rich man? Is it possible? And I'm just asking without an answer. I don't have one. Is it possible that may be part of the punishment of hell? It would seem so. I can't. I had it. You know, I can't quote it other than I believe it's in Ecclesiastes, so you'll just have to read the book. And there I can't even quote it. I'll give you a rough paraphrase. Something to the effect of even a living dog has more hope than a dead lion. Because as long as you're living, there's hope. After that, there's no hope. There's no hope. No hope. And it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of living God. I wish more people would be aware of that and realize what they're doing to their souls. 
and we'll continue again and still in chapter 10 we're going to we'll, we'll finish chapter 10 hopefully